Well, sometimes when we tackle a big chunk of Scripture, we just have to get going. I just have to get right after it. Last Sunday, we saw in Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, there's this setup when these three men visit Abraham, and uh, he, the Lord is one of them. The other two, later we find out, are angels. Uh, and they, they appear to Abraham. Abraham offers them hospitality. Uh, they, the Lord makes a promise that Sarah is going to have a baby boy within the year, to which Sarah responds by laughing. And so those, those first couple of verses in chapter 18 set up that account, but they also set up the accounts that come after that. They set up uh, the account that, that follows that, which we're looking at today, which is the account of Lot in Sodom. Uh, the Lord is not just on an aimless road trip when he visits Abraham. He's, he's not uh, just come to speak with Abraham as well. He's, he's come on a mission of justice, which he's going to carry out. Uh, you can be helped by following along on the sermon outline. You'll see the sermon theme, Christians will be saved from the judgment of God through our union with Jesus Christ, who intercedes on our behalf. Now, I'll go ahead and, and read this in the sections that you see on your, on your uh, sermon outline, uh, rather than all at once. Uh, so we'll go bit by bit and then talk a little bit about it as we, as we move along, beginning in verse 16, Genesis chapter 18 beginning in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down there to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So Abraham, ever hospitable, walks with these three guests in the, in the direction of Sodom, which apparently is their destination. Hebron, which is where Abraham is camped, is on a plain. It's about a thousand uh, feet above sea level, and it looks down on Sodom, which is near the Dead Sea, which is below sea level. It's a spiritual descent as well, just in case you didn't pick that up. It's a spiritual descent uh, from Hebron to Sodom, as well as a physical descent. And, and the Lord speaks to himself. I think that's what's happening here. This is another one of those rare times when we get to listen to the Lord deliberate in his own mind. Remember when, back in Genesis chapter 1, when he deliberated uh, with himself and as to how he will create man in his image. And later he deliberated within himself how he will create woman. Uh, I don't think Abraham hears this. But Moses, the inspired author, records it for us. Why? Well, you've noticed that Abraham and Sarah have a problem, don't they? They are liars. They're deceptive and dishonest when it suits them. They both lied to Pharaoh about being married. They're going to lie again. The, in, the, in the verse just before this, Sarah looked the Lord in the face and lied about laughing. So the Lord here, I think, is modeling for us how to behave in this covenant relationship with him. The Lord is actually modeling for us how to behave in this covenant relationship, which he has taken all this time to put together. The Lord asks a rhetorical question. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? It's a rhetorical question, and the obvious answer is no. You, you can take these rhetorical questions in Hebrew and in Greek for that matter most of the time. You can just flop them around and you can make them statements. I shall not hide from Abraham what I am about to do. Why is no the right answer? Because God says, I've made my covenant with Abraham and with his children after him. And Abraham's part in the covenant is to walk with God and be blameless. Abraham is to keep the covenant by being righteous, not by lying and some of the other behaviors we'd seen him perform. The covenant relationship is supposed to be marked by integrity, loyalty, honesty, openness, transparency, fidelity to the promises, and not lying. 
But Abraham doesn't hear this. Moses records it then for his readers. Who were Moses' first readers? They're the children of his covenant, camped on the banks of the Jordan River, about to fight to take over the promised land. Remember, we've referred to them regularly. That's who Moses delivers the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis. That's who he delivers them to. And they start to read. And what do they need? What do they need perched there on the Jordan River, about to go into a military conquest of Canaan? They need confidence. Confidence in the covenant that they are the rightful heirs to this land. And what do they read then in verse 19? That God chose Abraham to command them, Abraham's children, to keep this covenant by doing righteousness and justice, and they will be heirs to God's promise. And Abraham has done that. He has passed this down. They are on the banks of the Jordan. They do recognize this as their inheritance, which both instructs them and ensures them. It instructs them to be covenant keepers by doing righteousness and justice, just as Abraham taught them to do as they went down through the generations. They're God's righteous people by faith in the covenant who will execute God's justice on the idolaters in Canaan. And it ensures them that with the to take their rightful inheritance, which is from God and has given to them the land according to his covenant. They're, they're not pagan marauders like the four kings. This is God's land. He's raining judgment upon the Canaanites, and he's using his people Israel to do it with. It's their land. In the same way, we're to teach our children, aren't we? The new covenant. The new covenant that's in Christ. The gospel, so that by faith they would become heirs of the salvation, once for all handed down to thy saints. We're, we're to do the same thing. Back to the Lord looking down on Sodom. The Lord knows what he's about to do in Sodom. Do you believe that? Yeah, the Lord knows what he's about to do in Sodom, yet he is going to spend the relational time and energy to engage with Abraham in negotiations about it. Which points to a couple of things. First, and I know it's subtle, But the Lord is positioning Abraham as a prophet. God tells his prophets the things that he's about to do. And he's doing that here with Abraham. That's not a stretch because later passages will say that Abraham Abraham was a prophet. They'll refer back to Abraham and say he was a prophet. What should be encouraging to us is to see Almighty God, remember he has called himself El Shaddai in the covenant, Almighty God patiently, Gently, even lovingly, welcoming Abraham and his intimate friendship. He's going to let Abraham talk to him like this. You know, other than Jesus calling his disciples friends, Abraham is the only other person in Scripture called a friend of God. 2 Chronicles 20, James chapter 2. Psalm 25 verse 14 says that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, And he makes known to them his covenant. That's Abraham. Friendship with God equals intimacy with God. The intimacy that comes from fearing God, which is, we can say, in context, walking before him in righteousness and justice, and having his covenantal relationship with him, which we understand comes by faith. God is going to tell Abraham what he's about to do in Sodom. Not because Abraham is so trustworthy but because Abraham is God's covenant choice. He will tell him. Then the Lord says in Abraham's hearing, now if Abraham doesn't hear him say it here, he hears him say it later because we know in the next verse he knows this. The Lord says in Abraham's hearing that he is going down to investigate the outcry of sin from Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, that sounds like when, that, it sounds like when the Lord went down to see the, the tiny tower of Babel, doesn't it? Uh, there was sin and violence and wickedness all over the land, and the people had built this amazing tower that's going to reach to the heavens, and God has to kind of go down to take a look at it, and there he judges them as wicked. Uh, God knew the wickedness of the men in Babel, and he knows the wickedness of the men in Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet God is dealing with Abraham with grace according to his promise. 
And just like Abraham, we are charged with instructing our children to believe the gospel and to obey God's righteousness and to live justly so that they would receive saving faith. So that they would live their lives on the high plains of Hebron and not down in Death Valley where Sodom is. Which is, by the way, just outside this door. Let's pick up in the next section, beginning in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as well uh, fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, we should see this kind of as really as a courtroom proceeding, kind of a, kind of a legal proceeding. We already know that the people of Sodom are wicked, but what about the righteous? It seems that uh, likely that Abraham was thinking about Lot here. Who's in so Who do I know in Sodom? Let's say, Get up the Christmas card list. Oh, it's, it's Lot and his family. Moses writes that Abraham drew near to the Lord. That's an important phrase. This phrase, drew near, is used throughout the Pentateuch as a priestly activity. It's the priests who draw near to the Lord on behalf of the people. Abraham is now functioning as a priest. He's drawing near to God to intercede for the people of, all places, Sodom. More specifically, for any righteous people in Sodom, and, and hopefully that includes Lot. I mean, this is, an, this is an interesting contrast. Think about this in Abraham's life. The last time Abraham rescued the righteous, he did it by force, right? Abraham and 318 trained men fought wicked men who had stolen Lot from other wicked men. And he used force to do that. But this time, the threat is not from wicked men. The threat to Lot is the just judgment of a holy God upon a wicked city. Abraham can't gather up 318 trained men with swords and go fight God. He has to appeal to God, holy God, just God, who will do that which is just. He has to make this legal appeal to him. God is the righteous judge. Abraham is the reverent. He's very respectful here, yet persistent attorney, pleading the case of any righteous persons in Sodom and Gomorrah, but it kind of just collapses down to talking about Sodom. And through a series of potential scenarios, 50 people, 50 minus 1, 40, 20, 30, 10 people, Abraham establishes that God will not destroy Sodom if there are at least 10 righteous people in it. Which really means, it's his last question, because what it really means is that the judge of all the earth will do what is just, and he will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. But he is determined to sweep away the wicked. Abraham's intercession, is, it's one of the most remarkable intercessions in the Bible for at least two reasons. It takes up a lot of space. 
Uh, but, uh, but also, one, it's a, it's a fulfillment of God's promise for Abraham to be a blessing. Do you remember God's promise that, Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. You're going to be a blessing to others. How will Abraham be a blessing to the nations? Well, Abraham's priestly intercession will be a blessing to the nations that will come through Lot. If Lot dies, no Moabite nation and no Ammonite nation. Second, Abraham's priestly role points to the future fulfillment of Christ. He is a type of Christ in this way. In this priestly role, Christ is the one who fulfills God's great high priest who intercedes for his people. Turn with me real quick to Hebrews chapter 7. You want to make this connection. In Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number. So this is the priesthood back under the old covenant because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people and those whom the Lord will save. What is Jesus doing right this very moment? He is at the right hand of God Most High, praying, interceding on behalf of his people, because that's what a priest does. And Abraham is prefiguring that, which Jesus will fulfill. Back to Genesis chapter 19, we've just crossed over from chapter 18 into into chapter 19 as the account continues. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under my shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and they drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of this city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to them. He brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. 
Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now when Lot parted ways with Abraham, Lot camped outside of Sodom. Remember, he looked up with his eyes and said, wow, that looks like a prosperous place over there. I'm going to go camp outside of Sodom. Uh, When the four kings came and they captured Lot and took him away, we learned that he had no longer camped outside of Sodom, but he moved into a house in the city. And now he has taken a wife and sits in the city gate as a respected man of Sodom. So the city gate is where marketplace transactions are ratified. The city gate is where legal renderings are ratified. And there's Lot, a leader in the city. Lot welcomes the two angels, and he offers them hospitality and protection, just as Abraham had. We see, we see that's a good response, although Lot's meal, meal is, is meager in comparison. Remember, Abraham had, had meat and all kinds of things. Lot ends up giving them a little bit of unleavened bread. Now, the angels have no intention of sleeping in the town square. But they test Lot by saying so. And Lot says, no. No. Lot knows exactly what happens in Sodom at night. And so he presses them strongly that they must stay in his house. And so they go to Lot's house. But before they even lay down, you see, I don't think the angels had any intention of spending the night out in the town square because they have no intention of spending the night in Sodom at all. They did not come down to spend time in Sodom. They came down verse 21 of chapter 18, to see whether they all together have done according to the outcry that has come to the Lord. That's what they came to find out. And they have. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And for what purpose? For the homosexual gang rape of two men who were guests in their city. Now, we know what the outcry was that came to the Lord's ears, don't we? And yes, they, all together, to the last man, show the extent of their wickedness. Young to old, the pervasiveness of their wickedness. This is what the Apostle Paul addresses in Romans chapter 1. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 1, if you haven't already memorized it, you can look at Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for another. Men, other men, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Skip down to verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They have rejected God in a particular way by rejecting God's creation ordinances. That is the context of Romans chapter 1. They know God who created all this, but they deny it. God judges both those who practice homosexuality and those who approve of it. 
by giving them over to their debased minds. If I'm reading this rightly, and I believe I am, that is judgment, to give them over to their debased minds. A lot appeals to the mob's sense of hospitality. <laughs> They're raging against the door. Hey, guys, I, I have this kind of hospitality commitment. I'd like for you to consider, please. I mean, it's, it's pathetic, really. Lot wants them to respect his responsibility to protect his guests, but in order to placate the mob, he offers them his two virgin daughters who are betrothed to two men. It's despicable. It is. It's detestable. Lot tries to reason with the mob, but they turn on him. They're going to bring their own terrible judgment on Lot for getting in the way of their despicable lust. And so Lot, Lot's kind of trapped between these two virtues that, that he sees. The social virtue of protecting his guests and the fatherly virtue of protecting his daughters. And he's pitting them one against the other and he's, he's not trusting the Lord. Lot's guests are two angels who are about to call down destruction on the entire city from the Lord. Don't you think the Lord could provide a way out for Lot? other than sacrificing his daughters? Rather than choosing between two competing virtues, don't you think the Lord has a better way for Lot to remain righteous? The Lord does not need our unrighteous ideas to accomplish his righteous purposes. The Lord will provide a way out. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. So the angels pull Lot into the house. They strike the mob blind. You would think that that would stop the mob, but it does not. Even blind, they continue their assault on the house to rape the men. You, know, you notice that the judgment of God doesn't stop sin. They persist in sin, in the darkness, blinded, in the darkness of judgment, to the point that they're exhausted. They're just beating themselves up against the door until they're exhausted. And, and Lot here is just a miserable failure. Lot here is a miserable failure. He fails, he fails to protect his women, which is his responsibility. And yet, in verse 14... Lot believes the angels when they call to tell him that the Lord has sent them to destroy this place. He believes in the judgment of God. And he tells the two men of Sodom, he tells the two men of Sodom who were betrothed to his daughters, go run for your lives. Run for your lives. Up, go. And they laughed at him. They found him amusing. That would be a better understanding of the words. They found him amusing. Lot. Funny Lot. Amusing Lot. Judgment? Us? God destroy this place? What a joke. You know, it's as if decadent people and decadent cultures lose the ability to take anything seriously. It's all amusement. Lot himself is deeply entrenched in Sodom. When the angels say, it's time to go, up, they say, it's time to go, Lot lingers. Lot lingers. He's slow to leave. He's glancing around at his house and stuff and memories in the town. In fact, by the mercy of God, the angels actually have to seize Lot physically and take him and his wife and their two daughters outside of the city of Sodom. Now, you know, you kind of like to see that picture. You know, there's all these blind, zombie-like men, and they've got to get them out of there outside the city. And the angels tell Lot to head for the hills, the higher ground to escape the destruction down in the valley. And Lot says what? Oh, oh no. No, please. Let, let, let us just go over to that little town over there, Zoar. Because that's what Zoar means, little place. It's still in the plain, right? It's still in the valley that Lot thinks, gosh, that looks like the Garden of Eden to me. Please, let me, just, please let me go up there. I can't go up the hills. So the angels grant him his request, and they promise that they won't destroy Zoar. And the angels tell them not to look back as they run for their lives, but Lot's wife looks back, and she's petrified. 
as a pillar of salt. She suffers destruction. The destruction of Sodom, she just suffers right there upon herself where she stands because she's a woman of Sodom. And her affections were with Sodom. And she would not obey the angel's words. Now Lot and his daughters arrive in Zoar because they, uh, the, uh, the angels aren't allowed to call down the destruction until they're safe in Zoar, the protected zone. And finally, Sodom is destroyed by sulfur and fire raining down from heaven. It's unmistakable that this is the judgment of God. Just as the flood. So, the worldwide destruction of the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah are, are always used as paradigms for destruction. They're used together to point to the future judgment of unbelievers and the wicked. The New Testament uses destruction of the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as the pattern for the future judgment and the return of the Son of Man. So there's, there's flagrant sin, and then there's catastrophic judgment. That's the pattern. Also in the New Testament... The New Testament twice calls right, calls Lot, excuse me, righteous. Now let's look at one of those passages. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. So this is one of those, <clears throat> this is one of those passages. Peter's writing to the church. He's assuring them of two things: that God will judge the wicked, and equally important, he knows how to save the righteous through judgment. And here's the focus in, in chapter, uh, chapter 2, beginning of verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, the herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, but if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot. And here's the description of righteous Lot. He was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under judgment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. He's assuring them that the judge of all the earth will do what's right. He will judge the wicked, and he will spare the righteous. You're wondering about Lot's righteousness. Did Lot choose to live in Sodom? Yes. But did Lot believe in Abraham's God? Yes. Did Lot offer his daughters up for rape? Yes. But did Lot believe the angels were bringing God's judgment on Sodom? Yes. Did Lot linger? Yes. But did God, by his grace, rescue Lot? Yes. There is plenty of room to criticize Lot. But rather than exercise our self-righteousness by viewing Lot, we should ask ourselves a few questions that would helpfully shine light on our own faith. Let me ask you, in what ways am I conforming to the culture of Sodom around me? Have I allowed myself to be compromised in my duty to respect and protect women? Adam, Abraham, and Lot have all displayed this failure. How about you? In what ways have I adopted the appropriateness of a, sexual, of a secular culture rather than the appropriateness that is authorized me by God? Whose standard of appropriateness do I opt as to be appropriate? Culture tells me to keep my faith in my heart, but don't let it out. God tells me to work out my faith in my daily life for everyone to see. Culture tells me that God's creation ordinances like the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, the fact that God created mankind male and female are lies and the means to human oppression. God tells me that they are the very foundation of human flourishing and sanity. 
Culture tells me to leave Jesus out of it. God tells me it's all about Jesus. It always has been, and it always will be. So who shall I walk with appropriately? In what ways am I lingering in the world? What unclean things have I grabbed hold of when I'm not supposed to touch unclean things? When God says he is going to destroy something, our response should not be to enjoy that thing for as long as I can. Our response should be to align our affections with the righteous things of God and to disassociate with those things that God plans to destroy and to warn others of those things that lead to destruction. Don't be like Lot's wife. She tried to gain the whole world, but she forfeited her soul right where she stood. Instead, follow the Apostle John's wise words. Turn to these words of the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2. You know them. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse... 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, think the men of Sodom, and the desires of the eyes, think Lot, and the pride of life, think Lot's wife is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Dear friend, don't align your life and your affections with the things that God is going to destroy. You will find yourself in line for destruction along with them. Align yourself with the righteous things of God. Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ. Believe in him. He is the one who has taken the punishment for your sin upon himself so that you might go free. Don't turn to the things of the world. Don't double down on what's outside this door. Don't look back and say Sodom's better. It's not. It's death. Turn to the righteousness of Christ. Turn to God's promise. It's a covenant. It's a covenant. It's a promise that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for their sin, in their place, and shed his blood to cleanse you of your unrighteousness so that you might be righteous, that you might have his righteousness imputed to you so that you might enter the presence of God forever. Believe that. That's where we find life. In verse 27, back in Genesis chapter 19, we get this change of perspective. Abraham is again high on the plain looking down into the valley and there is no town of Sodom. No town of Gomorrah. All the unrighteousness have been baked in a furnace. See, Abraham doesn't have the metaphors like we do. Like it, was, it looked like a nuclear bomb went off. He, he didn't have that metaphor. But they knew what a furnace was. And they knew what it smelled like and looked like when something was burnt. And the smoke rose because the heat was so, you know, the, the pottery was glowing. There's nothing left but smoke and ash as, Noah, as Abraham looks down on the valley. And Moses intends us to see this picture of God's judgment on the wicked. 
He wants you to see nothing but smoke and ash because God's judgment on the wicked is severe and it's final and it's real. Moses also wants us to see that Lot's rescue is linked to Abraham's prophetic and priestly roles as an intercessor. He wants you to see that. God remembered Abraham when he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. See, the Lord has been merciful to Lot because Lot has responded in faith to Abraham's God. Even Zoar, little Sodom, is spared. Perhaps that's an, an unintended result of Abraham's intercession, but here it comes. God doesn't always answer things in one-to-one correlation with how we pray for them, but he certainly answered Abraham's prayer in saving the righteous. And God certainly kept his word when he destroyed the town because there were fewer than 10 people that were righteous in it. Beginning in verse 30, beginning in verse 30, there's just one more sad episode of Lot's life to consider. And then life dis- and then Lot disappears. Chapter 19, verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The first bore a son, called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Well, Lot has the angels promise to not destroy Zoar, but he's fearful to live there anyway. When he takes his daughters up to live in the caves on the cliffs, he doesn't go all the way up to the to the heights where Abraham is. He won't quite return to Abraham, will he? But he'll go kind of partway up, and he'll live in a cave with his daughters. This is no place to raise two daughters. No prospects to replace their former fiancés. No children to raise to care for them in their old age. So there again, there are unintended consequences to Lot's actions. And again, this this parallels the story of Noah and the flood. After the judgment, in both cases, drunkenness leads to immorality. It's a mystery how, even in his drunkenness, Lot is unaware of being raped by his daughters. But that's not really the point. The point is that Lot's daughters, like their mother, were women of Sodom. They grew up in Sodom. They behaved like Sodom. And the result of this incest is Moab and the Moabites and Ben-Ami and the Ammonites. And so Moses Moses records the origin of these two nations. Here they are, and they would not exist. Think about it. They would not exist if not for Abraham's intercession. Surprising as it seems, you might remember the name of a Moabite woman who will find herself in the line of Jesus. Her name's Ruth. Wow. There's a a little sliver of light there, isn't there? In Abraham's intercession for the nations? Of course there is. But it really is all about that Jesus who becomes our intercessor 
As a priestly intercessor, Abraham points us to Jesus. God's promise of Abraham blessing the nations is ultimately God's promise to Jesus that he will bless the nations by interceding for their sins on the cross and serving as their great high priest. In John chapter 17, it's called Jesus' priestly prayer. Jesus intercedes for his disciples, even for his future disciples, for us. Turn to John chapter 17. Let me just read a portion of this beginning in verse 20. Jesus is praying to the Father for his disciples, and then he says, I do not ask for these only, for these disciples here in front of me only, but also for those who would believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with, you, with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So just a quick question about prayer. Do you think God will answer that prayer of the Lord Jesus, which is offered for us? Yes. Yes. Oneness together and with the Father and with the Son. Love, the love of the Father for the Son, the love of the Son for the Father, and our love for one another, all the same. Are you encouraged? What about today? What's Jesus doing today? That was Him on earth before His death, burial, and resurrection. What's He doing today? Take a look at while we're in the New Testament, Romans chapter 4. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8. And pick up in verse 31. Paul is talking about the gospel and the future glory, and he says in verse 31, What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No! Verse 37. In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and who is interceding for us even now. What is against you today in your life? Jesus is interceding for you about that thing. That's what Paul just wrote. He is bringing the very resurrection power of God to bear in your life and in you today. That's what Jesus is interceding for. Are you encouraged? You know, it could be that some of us who understand what seems to be against us today is not something outside of us, but it's, it's our own sin. Is there encouragement for you today?
Go back to Hebrews and look at chapter 4. Beginning in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet, he's without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, like Lot, we can approach God our Father in heaven and find not condemnation for sin, but forgiveness and mercy because of the intercessory prayer ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Look to him and be encouraged. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed that we can start in Genesis and see this plan of redemption of sinners announced and then look to the New Testament and see the one who fulfills that, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love. Help us to see him as your final prophet, the final word. You've spoken to us in Christ, and now we have what you have revealed to us for living. Help us to access him as our great high priest, knowing that he is for us, and that we cannot be separated from him. Help us to see him as our king, the one whom we serve, because he is glorious. Father, give us courage in these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.